looking at transfer pricing in Belgium, the subject of today's Fiona Show episode, one is reminded of learning about Ernest Hemingway's writing method in a high school English class, in that there are the official rules in written legislation clearly spelled out for everyone to see, but... Where so many MEs run aground is the iceberg of unofficial documentation requirements lying just below the surface. Hello, everyone. Matthew DeMello here with a brand new episode of The Fiona Show, Cross Border Solutions Deep Dive Transfer Pricing Podcast. And on today's show, Cross Border's own Transfer Pricing Director, Pamesh Sharma, is on the program helping us to map out all of the rough edges of this jurisdiction. Among them, the Belgian Tax Authority is prioritizing funding for transfer pricing enforcement, which can land you an audit faster than you can say for sale, startup transactions never compared. Want credit for more than just giggling at nerdy literary jokes on this podcast? We're also here to bring you CPE credits. Just listen for three code words throughout this episode and send all three of them to the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. That's all one word. Once again, the Fiona Show at xbs.ai. AI and we'll reply with your certificate. It is that easy, but first, let's take a look at transfer pricing in the news. Good news for anyone who wants recent reforms to the EU's taxation framework on interest and royalties between parent companies and subsidiaries to actually mean something. The Italian Supreme Court seems to agree. In a recent decision, number 14756, for the nerds out there who love to Google stuff, the court cited in favor of the taxpayer. The issue at hand, whether a Luxembourg subholding company benefited from interest payments related to a withholding tax on their Italian subsidiary. The Luxembourg entity, the quote, financial core of the group, made a loan to its Italian subsidiary as part of a leveraged buyout of Italian and Swedish companies. But what triggered the lawsuit was how it collected interest on that loan while invoking the withholding tax exemption per rules specified in 1973's Italian Presidential Decree 29. While the EU is usually all about cracking down on tax maneuvers that can even be vaguely described as, quote, double-dipping, last year the European Court of Justice clarified the concept of beneficial owners, like the Luxembourg entity in this case, and deemed such practices distinctly not an abuse of tax law. Recent rulings from the Danish Supreme Court followed suit, and now, with the 14756 decision, the legal plumbing seems to be working across the continent. See, sometimes the courts do get it right. Attention tech companies, a big potential change in how technology is taxed across the world is appearing on the horizon. Earlier this month, the UN Committee of Experts on International Cooperation in Tax Matters proposed that the UN Model Convention include software payments under the definition of royalties. Congruent with debates currently raging in all things global digital taxes, the proposal seeks to preserve the taxing rights of developing countries. Often in these debates, these countries are referred to as eyeball markets in the digital space and are usually left out of taxable revenues for major tech companies that depend on access to eyeballs in those markets. Under the committee's amendment to the definition of royalty under Article 12, Paragraph 3 of the UN Model Convention, once again, you're welcome, nerds, payment for use or right to use software may be subject to withholding tax in the source jurisdiction. Now, just because it's proposed doesn't mean it will happen. But the battle lines have been drawn with opponents saying that standardized or, quote, shrink wrap software doesn't differ from other goods. Thus, there's no legal precedent for the amendment. That said, these debates seem to be moving in one direction, and it's not away from source jurisdictions. How to prepare? Countries should keep an eye on payments that could become subject to a source jurisdiction withholding tax and stay ahead of developments. On that note, have you uh, subscribed to this podcast yet? In speaking of digital taxes, France is calling out the United States once again, this time for trying to sabotage the OECD talks on the proposed taxes altogether. After suggesting a slew of non-starter at best proposals to the ongoing debates, such as a voluntary opt-in mechanism for U.S. companies that would basically undermine the whole point of having a tax in the first place, the Trump administration asked to put the talks on hold earlier this year because of <coughs> um, all this, I guess. 
But has the OECD ever blatantly missed a deadline without doing their darndest to keep it? Discussions went right on ahead anyway, the same way the rest of working life has resumed amid the pandemic, over Zoom calls and socially distanced committee hearings. Observing surprisingly less than usual American enthusiasm for new taxes, French finance minister Bruno Le Maire advised his fellow EU members by way of tacit ultimatum, quote, if the U.S. blockage is confirmed by year end, we are counting on the European Union to make a formal proposal to digital activities in the first quarter 2021. Just for those of you who think the nightmare of 2020 will be anywhere near close to over on New Year's Eve. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. Pamesh, thank you so much for being with us again on the Fiona Show to talk about Belgium. Before we do talk about this very unique jurisdiction, though, we'd like to get to know you a bit better with our get to know you round of questions. Pamesh, tell us about your experience with transfer pricing in Belgium. Great. Thanks, Matt. Nice to be here. So my my experience with Belgium came certainly in my prior role where I worked in industry for a U.S.-based software company. So... Um, we had a Belgium subsidiary, and this was at the time when, when you know, the, the BEPS rules were coming into effect. You know, I would say around 2016, we were seeing the first years of real change in, in the way taxpayers must comply with transfer pricing. Um, you know, and BEPS was BEPS was really big and fundamental, and in some ways quite descriptive in in the formats and layouts. But on the other hand. You know, there wasn't enough information locally in jurisdictions that gave that information. And what I remembered really clearly was actually having discussions with the tax authority at the time as to what is being meant by, you know, how are you applying BEPS? I, mean, I don't see anything here. What, you know, what would you consider to be BEPS compliant, whether it's the CBCR, the local file, the master file? Because we were, I was certainly cognizant of local variations of these. So, you know, that, that was my experience. I'm working really closely with a, with a local finance colleague based in Belgium who really needed support on that because there was a lot of focus um, on that jurisdiction. So, you know, that, that, that really sort of helped me look at BEPS as well and how that's going to change things. Yeah. That's right. And what changes have you noticed about transfer pricing in Belgium over the course of your career? Certainly, um, greater rigor to transfer pricing has been, has been given by the Belgian tax authority. So I've seen a move more from updates on every two or three years to now something that needs to be done on a contemporaneous basis. So I've seen more policies being in tune with what's happening in, in the OECD and in adjacent countries, right? So certainly more robust documentation, rigorous economic analysis, but also good documentation. So tracking a lot of the information that that is being looked at. So if you're producing a benchmark, you know, show the evidence of, of that benchmark, not just the, the ranges, but show the, the companies and what, what the P&L and balance sheet of the accepted companies are. All those details, I think, which, which were kind of loosely provided before, and now I see a more uh, rigorous approach to that. Right. And I, I know your your career has spanned tremendous sea changes in transfer pricing since, you know, 2015 and BEPS Action 13 and even before. But what do you feel is a constant transfer pricing challenge for experts even in 2020? I would, I would say, and this is pretty timely, is the arm's length principle, right? Because we know that with BEPS 2.0, there are discussions about 
new rules in apportioning profit around the world for multinational companies. You know, is, is the arm's length principle enough? Now, I remember, you know, way in the early days, just around the early 2000s, where I would go to conferences and, you know, arm's length principle was even being discussed then, even though when it was being fully adopted and applied by tax authorities around the world, um, there was always a fear of what we know as global formulary apportionment, which is, you know, allocate profit based on a set percentage, right, irrespective of, you know, where where the functions, assets and risks are, you know, that would be much a much simpler way of setting your transfer prices and, and compliance with transfer pricing. So I see a consistent theme is, you know, is the arm's length principle at risk of being put aside or being reinterpreted? And, and as of yet, after all these years, it's, it's still being applied. But I think what we may see, and this is probably, we may need a crystal ball is, is to how the arm's length principle is going to be supported by an additional allocation mechanism. I mean, we are seeing that, here, for example, with the, the digital service tax where we're seeing minimum markup or margins being applied, but something more fundamental, you know, beyond the arm's length may be written down, right? And may be adopted with the OECD. But this is that's a discussion I've always I, I've always seen in all my years is is the arm's length principle going to be at risk of, of being changed? You know, does it still apply? But it, but it still does, right? <laughs> We're still here. And just interrupting very briefly for our first CPE code word, and that code word is polder, P-O-L-D-E-R, a low-lying tract of land that forms a large portion of Belgium's coast. Back to our conversation, Belgium is a very interesting jurisdiction overall. It is a member of the OECD. What's the relationship between Belgium's transfer pricing and the OECD guidelines? So the relationship, actually, is a very recent one, certainly with the introduction of the new BEPS guidance and also the reworking of the OECD guidelines take into account of the BEPS, the BEPS initiative. So we will go into this in a later stage today. But uh, yeah, there's certainly uh, some interesting topics to discuss with the relationship with the OECD and Belgium. That's right. Now, does documentation have to be filed annually? Documentation needs to be prepared. It depends on the file, actually, Matt. So we have the local file, which is also known as the 275 local file or 275LF. It's a, a related party filing, which has to be filed with the tax return. So it's it's not what you would imagine a, a standard OECD transfer pricing file to be. It's certainly recommended to prepare one for any Belgian company have to prepare documentation because ultimately the input into the tax return come from the transfer pricing file. So what it is, in fact, is a series of tables which form part of a related party return that must be filed with the tax return. So what are the transfer pricing documentation requirements and how are they similar or different from the OECD? Okay, so in many ways, there's a lot of similarities. So um, there's, there's a high degree of consistency with, in terms of the OECD master file, local file, if you're preparing the report. There's also the CBCR requirements and also the notification requirements. For example, if we look at um, the CBCR file, so this will apply to multinational companies with annual consolidated group revenues equal to or exceeding 750 million euros. So that, that's pretty that's a pretty standard threshold, which we find in a lot of jurisdictions. And, uh, and this, this applied for fiscal years beginning the 1st of January 2016. And that must be filed no later than 12 months after the last day of the reporting fiscal year for the group. And as mentioned, there is a notification requirement. Now, prior to 2019, um, you know, the, the notification was was annually, but it is it, no longer required. So if you remember, Matt, uh, the, the notification requirement is really telling the tax authority who, who the ultimate parent is, gives some essential pieces of information like that. So and the, so the notification now only needs to be submitted if there are any significant changes in the information which has previously been filed in earlier notifications. So that, that's probably a help, no, no great changes there. It's pretty consistent. So that, that's really the local file. 
and and the, the the master file the requirements again are consistent with the oecd so we we have a great deal of consistency as i mentioned there are some slight differences in that with the local file you will have a transfer pricing documentation which we certainly recommend should be prepared because they record they 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 give you the inputs for the related party return called lf275 so so that information is, is is pretty important which we can we can talk about um, at a later stage and when it comes to filing that local documentation how unique are the rules in belgium to the extent you can just update the financials every year if you've already handed in a local file belgium still requires when a a, a belgian taxpayer submits a tax return there has to be that related party return called the 275 which has to be appended to the return and in fact also the master file has a a return a document which which basically is a checkbox exercise saying that a master file has been prepared there is still an annual review required to make sure there are no you know significant changes so yeah you should have the transfer pricing reports but you should certainly make sure that in terms of transaction amounts any changes in the the, the functional risk overviews any changes in the businesses because they will obviously you know impact on what we're ultimately inputting in, into the tax return and certainly the local file will need information such as competitive positions business strategy information on the economic analysis and tp methods they all flow into this information return that's filed with the tax return so um certainly regular updates are, on those are needed Right, right. Now, uh, Belgium has adopted BEPS Action 13. Who is required to submit master and local files? You were mentioning before the, the 750 billion euro threshold, which is pretty rudimentary for the region, the OECD. Right, that's right. So in, in terms of who's required to submit the master and local files, so it's really any MEs which exceed the following threshold. So we're looking at the operating and financial income exceeding 50 million euros or a balance sheet total value that equal or exceeds 1 billion euros or the average annual number of employees exceeding 100 full-time equivalent positions that's kind of the main main requirements to prepare as you said matt in addition to that um, group revenue value of 750 million euros and it's worth mentioning also with that uh, local file related party filing that has three sections to it and again there are some exemptions within those it may be worth mentioning that those three sections are our tables part one to three so part one requires general information part two is more quantitative focused so it, it looks at the intercompany transactions and the methods and part three gives the taxpayer an opportunity to attach, attach other documents so you, in fact you could attach the, the local file for belgium to that return and those thresholds, you know, roughly, for example, if you look at part two, it's only required if the taxpayer meets a 1 million euro cross-border transaction threshold. So, you know, there are some thresholds even within the return. If you meet that, that threshold for the individual transactions, then they qualify to be put into the related part of return as well. That's right. Now, aside from the 750 million euro threshold, in, in looking at these three specifically, this is a little bit more unique to Belgium. To what end does it serve the economy of Belgium to have these more unique thresholds? Um, I think it certainly gives greater focus on taxpayer to be cognizant of its related party dealings, certainly in terms of the quantum of those dealings and certainly at the time of filing your, your corporate tax returns, right? that information must be at the front of your mind as a taxpayer rather than being something such as a transfer pricing report that's prepared contemporaneously you know and it, and it may be required after a set number of days upon request i think belgium's approach is very much one where a taxpayer needs to be proactive in the preparation of their transfer pricing information right which leads to the documentation the dp return so I think it's certainly several notches up to to what it used to be. So taxpayers certainly in Belgium need to be to be mindful of those recent changes. And what language is documentation submitted in? Sure. So there's flexibility here. So we have English, Belgium, of course, French, Dutch, or, or German language. 
um, but it, it's important to to focus on you know if you're an ME global, which means um, you're looking at consistency in the narrative of your transfer pricing reports. So it's probably great to focus on maybe one language to have that consistency and then you know make those jurisdictional conversions to different languages where they're required in different jurisdictions. Right, right. Now, in Europe, the EU, obviously, Belgium has a different connotation than maybe some of our outside or U.S. listeners might realize. It's a little bit more akin to talking about Washington on a certain level. And at least only in documentation, the language requirements so far, do you see kind of it reflective, not just, of course, of Belgian culture, you know, uh, the huge French speaking population, of course, huge German speaking population, of course, but a little bit more reflective of Europe as a whole and Belgium's place in it. Correct. Yes, it's uh, it certainly it certainly reflects that mainland European nation, which is you know at at a, a critical critical point. I think certainly in terms of the European Union uh, and reflecting that that diversity of languages. And are there any additional disclosures that need to be submitted in Belgium? Yes. Yeah, so for payments of more than a hundred thousand euros per taxable period to persons in, in tax havens requires that information also is a requirement to be submitted in the in the related party return 275 we mentioned earlier. And also there are additional pieces of information which are required uh, in terms of the information we find in the annex section of statutory accounts. So where that's relevant in um, the transfer pricing ports that that needs to be prepared. So we're talking about areas like the nature of off balance sheet arrangements and also you know, where applicable any intercompany guarantees, pledges, factoring liabilities and uh, special purpose entities, for example. And there's also, there's also a, a requirement to disclose transactions which are also not considered arm's length. And, and I think there's a reason that that may be there because it, it creates a requirement of the relevant entities to review and document the arm's length nature of the transactions. So, okay, so they could easily either fall into that, that category or simply not be considered arm's length, right? So there's that initial analysis. And I think it also adds to those disclosures being you know, good sources of information for an inspector who is auditing those returns. Indeed. I see a, a, a lot of these kind of tiptoeing around intercompany agreements. We've talked about the importance of intercompany agreements so often on this show. But at what point would you want to make disclosures on that level uh, of your own volition as a taxpayer? It's good to be mindful that um, we're talking about consistency here. So where there's no changes year on year in, in particular activities, then the intercompany agreements you know, are relatively unscathed as long as the, the main arguments, the main discussions around the function assets and risks you know, are not changing. So we have um, year on year consistency. And I think you know, your intercompany agreements will, will still reflect that pattern but when we have areas such as um, sort of restructuring or there are markers where we're seeing fluctuations in say profitability which may you know when we're looking at our own due diligence of our, our intercompany dealings and the business as a whole then we may need to consider well are the intercompany agreements reflecting those changes which are happening in the business also in the restructuring restructuring is really important here because when we, whenever we have a change, you know, whether it's a sell-off or, or a purchase, an acquisition, changes and the like, they will certainly impact intercompany agreements where they affect the transactions. So that's where you know, certainly we need to be mindful that there is a, a change that reflects that in the, in the agreements. Given these additional disclosures, business restructurings, intercompany agreements, do those tend to be higher red flags than usual for Belgium as a jurisdiction for an audit? Yes, they are. Changes in profitability are one of those areas, but there are others, right? So uh, we know that in, in for the Belgian tax authority, any structural loss-making activities will will certainly raise a, a red flag, uh, and also any companies which have high intercompany leverage, so you know a lot of debt intercompany, that will, will certainly be high on the on the on the interest 
of the of the auditor. Indeed. Now, the interesting part of of these disclosures that Belgium asks for the payments of a hundred thousand euros per taxable period to persons and tax havens requiring submitting the form two seven five, the additional info in the notes section for nature of off balance sheets, all as you were mentioning, they're not actually a part of the Belgian tax code. Why are they important to tax authorities? Yeah, I mean, these are important to tax authorities because if you're not compliant, this could lead to other issues such as liability, right? So this liability may, may transfer to directors of a company. That's what raises the level and the importance of these. Certainly, as mentioned earlier, it, it creates the requirement for the entities involved to review and document the ultimate nature of the transactions. And of course, right, you, you have to you know, in addition, you also have to submit the CBCR and the notifications, which again, carry their own level of information requirements, right? Right. You mentioned director liability. You know, this just might be a question for me and the 101 folks, but what is that consequence materially? What does that mean to, to hold a, a director in, in liability? In general, I think probably what stands out, probably only a few tax authorities ever had personal liability as part of any kind of non-compliance penalty, whereas now we're seeing a greater emphasis by different tax authorities, and certainly in Belgium in this example. So that could really mean a lot of things, but certainly at the most severe end, that would be bringing in uh, a director into court. That's on the one end of the scale, right? You know, and on the other side, it's it's looking at the audit and mission requirements. You know, if the director has to signed off of, on these, then you know, that's something directly needs to be involved in any kind of promotion request, any TP audits. So it really brings that, that attention out on, on an individual basis. And do the Belgian tax authorities require local comparables? They, they don't require local comparables. I, I certainly think the traditional pan-European approach has been acceptable. I would certainly, even with the, the, the size of the, of the country, certainly look for local comparables. You know, that, that can't hurt, right? From a you know pure functionality risk perspective, it's always good practice to go there first. But generally speaking, if that's not the case, we know we widen our geographic remit, go pan-European. That's perfectly fine. And how long is the timeline for benchmark acceptable? There is a statute of limitations, which is you know again that that varies country to country, but I think for Belgium generally it's about three years. However, you know talking about liabilities, in the case of as uh, suspected fraud that could extend to seven years, right? So that that's it's worth noting that because that's an extra degree of looking back over a big time period. And the further we look back, you know, the clearer it can get. So it's certainly important to make sure, you know, we, we abide as best as we can to the, to the rules. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. Now, it's not an official regulation, which has kind of been the case thus far in, in various different requirements, but the Belgium Tax Authority has specific criteria in practice in terms of benchmarking. Uh, what can you tell us about those unofficial rules? We talked about the regional comparables. We know that the tax authority accepts a full range, prefers a, an Excel interquartile range. But there are preferences, for example, for comparable companies, right? So that these are the third-party comparable companies if you take our profit-based approach that we find in databases. There has been a preference for the use of companies which have unconsolidated accounts. So I think the idea of that is that it's free of any sort of intercompany 
issues or intercompany pricing issues, which can often be found when accounts are consolidated. Not always the case, but there is a greater likelihood, so, you know, given company which has more intercompany dealings. There's also a, an independence criteria, which tends to be preferred by the Belgian authorities. So this would be where a comparable company should not be owning any subsidiaries or in turn be owned by a shareholder. So that can be a fine balance to find. There's certainly, we know of a rejection of startup companies, usually means that those companies which are active for less than three years would not be preferred. We talked about this earlier in terms of the risk assessments when we're looking at loss-making years. So in and of itself, Belgium doesn't need to have negative operating income or, or companies running at losses to be screened for initially as long as they're eliminated in the qualitative analysis. So any companies with, say, two or more loss-making years, as long as we describe you know, why they're being eliminated, that's fine. But, but to have them in the set is, is probably not quite um, but I'm also interested to the extent that these are unofficial. I mean, besides listening to an extremely informative transfer pricing podcast with very knowledgeable guests, how would taxpayers even know to follow these rules? Uh, how have they come to existence unofficially? Often, you know, when I look back at my early days of transfer pricing, right, and when we actually used to manually run the benchmarks, I'm extracting information from the databases in, in, in a quite low-tech manner. So it would often take hours, right? These areas, such as rejection of startup companies, they often come up by economists in my team as a good sense of way from an economic perspective to eliminate companies which wouldn't necessarily be comparable, right? Because you know, I think I think certainly with startup companies, as you say, Matt, it is unique in their approach to selection of comparables. But actually, it makes good economic sense, particularly if companies we're looking at are not new, because we know startup companies will have, you know, different characteristics in terms of their, their space and, and their profitability. So they wouldn't necessarily be steady, if that makes sense. And also, you know, again, probably looking at looking for unconsolidated accounts. I think that's another aspect I've seen used, certainly in, in my formative years, I should say, when I was running those, those searches. That, you know, these were these are something that, that only economists would talk about. Maybe not the tax people, but the economists within the tax team would often argue for these. So they're very interesting, I think, from, from that perspective, that it's, these ideas have filtered up into the tax authorities themselves, albeit unofficially. Right, right. And interrupting very quickly for our second CPE code word, and that code word is Frank, as in F-R-A-N-C, reflective of the very sizable French-speaking population in Belgium. The Belgian franc was the standard currency for the country for over a century before converting to the euro in 2002. Returning to our conversation, and as with so many jurisdictions, there is the sign of change on the horizon for Belgium recently. The Belgian tax authorities released a draft of transfer pricing guidelines. What do these guidelines include? Sure. So the Belgian tax administration in February, so this, this is quite recent, February, early this year, published the final guidance. So it generally contains criteria fittingly about benchmarking, for example. So there's a, a greater alignment with the 2017 OECD transfer pricing guidelines. So remember, these, these are the guidance which have been updated, include the final updates of the BEPS project. So what you'll find here, for example, is there is a simplified approach to low value added services, which you also find in the CDs. A markup of 5% is acceptable if the characteristics are there to be low value. There's also guidance on hard to value intangibles, which again aligns with the OECD 17 guidance. And also, you know, I guess more common than you would have expected a tax authority to have, but there is now a, a literal arm's length range definition, right? So the arm's length range needs to be within an intercultural range. So tax authorities, should they need to make an adjustment, will make an adjustment to the median. So it's, it's good to know that there's clear guidance as opposed to maybe what, what tends to be practiced. And quite fundamentally, the, the OECD guidance also changed with inclusion of financial transactions, also known as Chapter 10. That made it a bit late for the 2017 guidance, but you know this 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 Chapter 10 is very interesting because again, this hasn't been caught by Belgian tax authorities before, but now we have more concrete ideas about 
uh, intercompany financing. So, so for example, the concept of implicit support, if you know, if a parent was deemed to be providing you know better credit rating for a you know one of its group entities to to attract better financing, then it it was considered that an, a fee should be required. But what's interesting here is that the the Belgian tax authority has said that isn't a requirement that an implicit support payment to be made. So you know that that's also good. It, it's giving it's giving clarity. And before I finish on this, I mean, two other areas, one of them in finance would be greater clarity on, on cash pooling. So we now know that where you have cash pool participants, uh, the Belgian tax authority will consider them all to have similar or, or same credit ratings. And then also if we're looking at uh, deposits and borrowing that remain longer than uh, 12 months, uh, the tax authority will recharacterize those as short-term loans. Again, this is all feeding from clearer guidance we now have from the OECD. So there's some interesting changes with this with this new new announcement. Mm. I'm also noticing that there are some of what we listed in the unofficial disclosures that that need to be submitted in Belgium here, but not all. Do you think, to an extent, this is kind of them holding their hand to make a cards metaphor, so to speak? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I certainly think it's it's a real acknowledgement. Some big changes have been made with the OECD in recent years, and certainly there is a greater clarity, greater need to to reflect those changes with certainly more concrete guidance, which should help. Yeah, it's it seems like various species of jurisdiction behavior to make things more clear, so companies are less afraid of the transfer pricing process overall, but not so clear that there are no pitfalls or that everything is so spelled out. But how does solid documentation help avoid penalties? Yeah, I mean, certainly solid documentation is, is certainly a needed goal to, to aim for. So failure to submit that the master file, local file, CBCBR, um, and also notification of, of, of the tax authority in a timely manner um, can lead to administrative penalties and the so-called second infringement. And non-compliance with documentation also you know, as we all know, will will increase the chances of an audit, right? Given given past infringement and failure to submit the local file itself, and, and as you remember, this file two seven five local file is is that section of the uh, related party return that's filed with the income tax return has results which you know if they if they're inaccurate or if they're incomplete, and because they're with the tax return, they could lead to a reversal of even you know the, the burden of proof, right? So, you know, where you have good documentation, it's up to the tax authority to prove otherwise. But once you reverse that burden, you're then on, on the back foot, which which can draw out an audit. And it's very difficult to recover sort of reputationally, right? So it's important to, to get good documentation out at the beginning. Not to keep harping on the difference between, you know, the unofficial and the official disclosure requirements, at least for documentation. But it seems as though that the the Belgian tax authority is encouraging information disclosure. But I see there's kind of this opportunity here to give too much or at least encourage too much disclosure. Is there such a line or are you better off disclosing when in doubt in Belgium? I think you're certainly better off keeping close to that disclosure requirement. Certainly don't want to overflow with the information which is already a burden on, on taxpayers. So I certainly feel the the guidance we're now seeing coming out of the Belgian Tax Authority is is it's just enough information to, you know, create a, a story which um, also aids with the information which is being retrieved from the CBCR, right? So it creates in just enough information, not too much, but just enough to, as you said, to get the taxpayer to be obliging enough to provide accurate data, which can then you know, go to the tax authority for the tax authority themselves to make a judgment on what extra is needed. We mentioned the statute of limitations for three years of interquartile for benchmarks. There's also seven years if fraud is suspected. Is that unique to Belgium? I have seen this in other jurisdictions. Maybe the, the number of years could be unique, but certainly where where we have situations where documentation is seen to be you know, fraudulent or you know there is some... There is some intent not not to disclose information which should be readily available and required. And on those situations, it, it sort of changes the rules, if you like, straight away from you know something that becomes compliance to something that becomes certainly more more audit focused and 
you, you then certainly need to be ready with, with quick fire questions from the tax authority. So I don't think it's unique, but I do think, you know, the, the uniqueness may derive from the, the number of years that are required, but we certainly you see that in other, in other tax authorities. We've spoken about this in the context of the information disclosures, also intercompany agreements, but what is the overall likelihood of a transfer pricing audit in Belgium? In Belgium, it's, I would say, from a risk rating of low, medium, high, I would say it's a median, uh, medium to high because, you know, Belgium is certainly a sophisticated uh, tax authority, so it wants and it seeks out robust policies and methods which are, um, supporting those those policies, so I would certainly say that would be the right sort of risk area. And you know, if challenged, I would say um, a, a chance of adjustment is, is probably high. So we we talked about the interquartile range, so there will be a preference to adjust to the median if you certainly fall out of those. So th- those are those are certainly um, some elements to to be mindful of during an audit. That's right. Now, Belgian tax authorities send out transfer pricing audit questionnaires to domestic parents in the country and permanent establishments, about 200 and 300 or cent. What types of information are requested in those questionnaires? The information we're finding in terms of what's required out of those questionnaires, we're looking at areas like the organization of the company. So they're more organizational economic questions. So these could be certainly areas around, you know, where's the organizational chart? So we want detail of those, uh, of all the transactions in the group. Uh, information on the internal reporting structure, uh, they're sort of key elements being asked for. And also um, what's asked about is the methodology used to substantiate the transactions within the group. So the method on the basis of the transfer documentation, the studies, the intergroup agreements. So areas like that. So we know also that in recent years, the, the, the Belgian audit cell has invested more resources in transfer pricing audits. So we know that I think in line with a lot of other tax authorities, you know, the tax authorities are really upping their game with the use of technology and and data mining techniques. Certainly those techniques are are being used for the CBCR reports, but they're now being applied uh, across the board with information which is being found in, in these related party returns. This information we know is being shared within the audit departments and this can lead to increase in audits in terms of transfer pricing. It's certainly important to uh, not underestimate the, the sophistication now of uh, how tax authorities, um, particularly Belgian in this case, of how they're using data mining systems to flag information that, that comes out of these questionnaires. For sure. Now, data mining is a little different in a bit more of a specific term than just general AI or even using, you know, fancy Excel tricks to, you know, boil down different equations or data. But can we get a little bit more specific about the technology be, being used? How does data mining versus other kinds of technology uh, help auditors in the transfer pricing process? Yeah, so the um, the data mining does does help tax authorities because it's it's become so sophisticated that um, not only can they look at the inputs from questionnaires, but they can also look at you know professional careers sites, which which you know for example LinkedIn, they can they can look at those electronic footprints left by people within organisations. And that ability to cross-reference the head of sales or just as an example is now available across the board for a lot of tax authorities. That's certainly a, a game changer in terms of how tax authorities have behaved in the past and now how they can do this. You know, once, once the initial cost of acquiring the software is made, it, it certainly repays itself in terms of the information these tax authorities are getting back in in the quality of data that's being mined in this way. If you add that sort of information, in addition to what's being found in the CBCR reports, you you then get almost an automatic mechanism to red flag some companies against others, depending on what's being looked at and sought after by a particular tax authority. 
I'd be remiss not to mention our TPU courses, that's Transfer Pricing University, uh, available from Cross-Border Solutions, which are a webinar, and we teach a CPE course in transfer pricing. And something we talk about a lot is the difference between maybe the public story or stories that companies tell about their business versus the private story that that they know is at the heart of their business. Maybe a good example of that would be McDonald's. They don't necessarily make uh, their name on food so much in their real business as they do real estate. Anybody who's seen the movie Founder is familiar with how that dynamic works. But also, you were mentioning LinkedIn and data mining, but this is something that's become very much circumstantial for a lot of jurisdictions. But they are looking at public data. They are looking at social media pages for employees employees in order to see if what employees are saying about how they do their jobs lines up with the stories that the companies tell in their transfer pricing documentation about what this entity does or does not do. And that presents a problem because obviously on LinkedIn, I do this, everybody does this. You want to build yourself up and maybe you'll maybe in that aggrandizing for what you personally do, that might not line up necessarily with with a, a more conservative approach to that storytelling that might be in the transfer pricing documentation. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. I think I certainly think that when we begin the, the, the journey to, to creating our transfer pricing documentation, we as, as professionals, as tax professionals, as taxpayers do need to be mindful of that right from the very beginning that we just need to tell the accurate and, and the right story from, from the start because that just helps the, the whole process to be as honest and as upfront as you can, because that will, that will certainly help in acceptance of the documentation. And what's interesting about this is, is that you know, th there is a potential for good reputation, bad reputation, right? So this has really raised the game of transfer pricing in, in, in corporations right up to the board level. The, the concept of reputational damage. We know the obvious stories about taxpayers in the news, but but I think that's a lesson learned for board members that it does filter transfer pricing as well because as taxpayers, generally everybody is just trying to be compliant. It, it really helps to tell the right story right at the top to, to prevent any kind of reputational damage in, in the future. You were mentioning methodology, especially in how Belgium is upping their, their technology game. But how likely is it that the methodology will be challenged during an audit in Belgium? Again, I think probably very likely. I would, again, I would say medium, medium to high because we know that the related party returns have a section in those tables for you know, the methodology specifically. So it, it's almost the information is laid out there for the tax assessors at, at the tax authority to, to look at this information. And we do know, and perhaps we know this from, from earlier TPU course sessions, that there are typical PLIs and even methodologies that tend to be applied for certain industry characteristics and certain types of intercompany transactions. And certainly tax authorities are clued up with that. So if we know that the, the related party return has a method which maybe doesn't sit very well, although it may be justified, it may not sit very well with what the story we're trying to tell and, and the markup or the margins we're trying to apply. We do know that that, that that information can't be hidden. So yeah, there's certainly a high chance that if, if the methodologies are now being disclosed right at the point of the tax return that you know any challenges will be will be pretty uh, pretty swift indeed now we've mentioned structural changes business reorganizations as uh, a potential situation that ranks high for how audits are targeted but what are some other specific industries or situations that are targeted for audits in belgium there are some um some examples coming to mind for instance would be um um, any operations which run back-to-back, -back, um, that's something we've seen come up with, with the Belgian tax authorities. Also, where we have um, services, intercompany services, so where we have invoices for services which aren't, say, billed monthly or on a quarterly basis, but, you know, they, they all tend to land at the end of the tax year. That can kind of some eyebrows there. Um, and, of course, um, intangible-related and financial transactions certainly now with the changing in the rules, but, but don't forget intangibles is, is always there as well. 
the tax authorities and certainly no different with, with Belgium as well. And certainly we talked about the related party forms, right? The 27.5 local file and the master file. If for, for some reason we fail to, to submit those at the time of filing our tax returns, you know, the, 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 if we fail to do that or not in a timely manner, again, that, that's an immediate challenge. Yeah, absolutely. So, Pamesh, we've gone over the audit cell in Belgium, their recent transfer pricing guidance draft that's more in line with the OECD. We've talked a lot about, uh, you know, the blurry lines between the official and unofficial uh, documentation disclosures that are required by the tax authority. What does this tell us in a big picture sense about where transfer pricing is heading in Belgium. There's greater rigor with the Belgian tax authorities' approach to transfer pricing. So we, we see this in um, you know, the, the, the formal acceptance of the very latest and current uh, changes to the OECD rules. I think that's one of the biggest signals that you know, any taxpayers historically, let's take, for example, in finance, maybe adopted uh, uh, more of a minimal approach to documentation of intercompany finance. Well, we now know that, you know, the Bones Tax Authority is very clear about what it likes to and wants to see. The clear takeaway would be any Belgian taxpayer to look back historically or approach been in terms of adhering to OECD transfer pricing rules in general and also now specifically to these the new guidance for 2017 and the OECD transfer pricing rules, which have adopted uh, the, the BEPS project um, outcomes. So, uh, and that's really important because historically, if your reports haven't fully followed the spirit of, of the OECD guidance, then your current projects on transfer pricing and future transfer pricing reports will certainly be different and they will certainly need to match and reflect the current OECD guidance in a much firmer way. We're talking about using the language of the OECD regarding the arm's length requirement and, and also you know, putting down all the information such as information about the business strategy, key details about functional analysis and economic analysis, which I think up to this point, one could say you know, this information may have appeared in an appendices, you can ask for this upon request. Whereas now we should be saying, well, this should be in our report, it should be prepared, and it should be ready by the time we submit our tax return. So there's certainly a sharpening of focus, and, and that's what we should uh, see in all Belgian taxpayers going forward. And very quickly, with our last interruption for our final CPE code word, that code word is an abbreviation, MNC, short for the Movement National Congolese which was instrumental in Congo gaining independence from Belgium in the 1960s. Pamesh, even with where we know transfer pricing is going in Belgium and how this is indicative of larger economic forces, the OECD, et cetera, everything going on in the EU, to what extent does this underscore the fundamentals of transfer pricing as we've known them since BEPS Action 13 and before in, in 2015? What does this say about the 101 that we know in, in transfer pricing documentation, filing contemporaneously, staying ahead of jurisdictions in traditional ways? Yes, I think it certainly it sort of touches on, on that point about our documentation must be contemporaneous. It must be looked at regularly. We must tell a consistent story, which is accurate. In terms of the, the economic benchmarks, we must be looking at regular full updates of our economic analysis, as opposed to you know very, very brief cursory reviews to see whether we're still within the arm's length range, for example. So I think all those truths about having robust documentation are certainly being pushed to, to the front, um, certainly with, with the Belgian Tax Authority and the new rules now. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, 
penalties and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Thank you so much again for being with us, Pamesh. We now come to my favorite part of the show where we get to know our guest even a little bit better than we did in the beginning, and that is our rapid-fire round uh, of questions. Our first question is always, are you ready? Yes, absolutely, man. <laughs> Excellent. Question number two, what mistakes do you see multinationals making again and again? One of, one of the key mistakes I see again and again is when documentation is being reviewed. Um, it's not being reviewed consistently and, and on a yearly basis. So I think you know, historically documentation and, and certainly the economic analysis has been looked at every two to three years. I think now one of the areas I think certainly taxpayers should be looking at is on an ongoing basis is, is looking at transfer pricing and how it fits the business contemporaneously so on a year year-on-year year basis. That would be one of the main areas. One of the other areas I often see is an inconsistency in the story behind the transfer pricing. So um, and by that, I mean, you know, where we have jurisdictions around the world performing various intercompany transactions, performing functions, assets and risks relevant to those transactions. That story that should not differ between one jurisdiction and another jurisdiction that's part of the same transaction. So those inconsistencies we've, we've often seen historically, whether whether reports have been produced in-house or maybe, maybe externally using localized advisors who really aren't talking to each other. So I think having that single story is so important, particularly in this post-BEPS world, because that's the one thing being, being looked at right now. Is our data consistent? Are we telling the same story? You know, does the CBCR tell the same story for all our jurisdictions? And I think I think those those two areas are really important. And what is the best career advice you've ever received? Oh, that's a really good question. And and what what just came to mind was was be nice to the people on your way up uh, and be nice to the people on your way down. So I don't know I don't know where I should take this on the way down, but. Sounds good, like like good elevator advice. Yeah, it's good elevator <laughs> advice as well. So you know, it has it has dual purpose. But it, yeah, it really makes sense. I think because you know where we are in our where we are in our careers, right? Where we're where we're young and and trying to get as much experience as we can, and then suddenly you know you reach a peak and and you know you're heading to that hopefully that nice retirement. It's it's always good to just you know have good. You know, have good colleagues, right? Because when you're up and you're down, it's you know, it's it's good to have good good colleagues around around you. And then I think you know, on the way down, you may be seeing one of those colleagues you saw on the way up. Maybe maybe, maybe can give you a leg up. So maybe I don't know. That 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 to me just came to mind as, as some some pretty good advice. Honestly, if it, as I go, be nice or go home can be written on my gravestone. Uh, that, that's how I feel about it. But what is the best career advice you've ever given? Is I, I would certainly say is is really enjoy what you're doing, right? It's it's certainly easier said, right? Because we have a lot of constraints in, in our lives in terms of, you know, um, um, paying the bill and, and um, career pro progression and so forth. But I think... Um, at the heart of it is is really enjoy what you do. You know, I'm not saying you know go go for your go for your dream, go for your passion, right? Um, because you can probably do that at the same time. But I think you know certainly find areas which you which you enjoy where because you see the real you in that that version of you. If that makes sense. And, and I think that, that really helps helps your career, but it also helps you give. For example, with what I do, the best advice you can you can give, right? Fill in the blank. If I weren't a transfer pricing expert, I'd be a blank. Enter your dream job. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would be a marine biologist. I certainly think that's one of the areas I would have liked to go 
to go, to have gone into right so you know love of animals but also the sea it kind of it's it's a it's a win-win right <laughs> yeah yeah never too late especially in retirement no, and, absolutely. Uh, no. yeah some something of it something people always you know like my parents have just retired and and uh, they're like i have no idea what to do i'm like and i always look at my bookshelf and i go i there will never be a moment in my retirement where i go <laughs> what, what what am i supposed to do there's a gigantic bookshelf over there anyway that's just me anyway yeah <laughs> people define success in different ways what's your definition my my success is 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 very you know it, it's very humbling i just think it's it's you know just to succeed is really to, to try your best to be your best in, in what you're doing and i think you would then certainly succeed i think that's a really good good sort of focus to go for in your attempts to to want to succeed in something um and keep going right so as long as you're doing a good job you know or or, or, or if you're if you're finding lapses then just persist right never never give up especially something you like to do Pamesh, thank you so much for joining us on today's show. And we want to thank everybody at home as well. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And while you're there, don't forget to check out the Fiona Show Hot Off the Press with all of your transfer pricing headlines in under 10 minutes. My name's Matthew DeMello, and I've tricked the largest independent international tax firm into letting me host, edit, and engineer their podcasts. Executive producer Marilyn Mitchum-Strom writes our scripts. Stay safe, everyone. Wear a mask, and we will catch everyone next week.